Welcome to Hillside Baptist Church Podcast. We are a church that is committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is our privilege to open God's word with you. It is our prayer that you receive the message from the man of God with an open heart. That through God's word, you are encouraged and equipped to face life's challenges. But most importantly, it is our prayer that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior if you haven't already. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at hillsidebc.com, find us on Facebook, or send us an email at info at hillsidebc.com. We hope that you benefit from today's message and that you would share it with a friend. But let's now open our hearts and God's Word. All right. Thanks, Greg. Leviticus chapter 23. I want to thank the pastor again for an opportunity to talk about such a subject dear to my heart. These feasts of the Lord carry such a powerful message that they're almost scary, if you know what I mean. Because uh, when you look them over, you're just going, wow, are we close or what? We are really close to our Lord's second coming. And so tonight in Leviticus chapter 23, that's where we're actually going to start is in Leviticus 23. We have six, um, this series came with six lessons. The three we've already done and finished is a special introduction. And then we did charting the big picture. And there's still a few of the charts back there on the table if you want one. And then the, the spring feast. We just finished up last week the spring feast, which included Passer, Passover, rather, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the last one then was the Feast of First Fruits. And tonight... Uh, we're going to be dealing with number four. There are actually three lessons left, the New Covenant Summer, and then the Autumn Feasts, and then we're going to deal with the Feasts and Bible Prophecy. And so tonight, the one we're dealing with is New Covenant Summer, New Covenant Summer. So study one, if you remember right, it was a special introduction because we had to blow the sawdust, sawdust off of where we were going so we could focus on our our study. Then to get the big picture, we wanted to look at some charts and just get an overall big picture of what we're talking about when we look at the seven feasts. And then we last week finished up the spring feast, which the Passover stands for Christ's crucifixion. The, the unleavened bread stands for the memorial of his burial, and the first fruit stands for his resurrection. And tonight we're going to be dealing with the New Covenant Summer. New Covenant Summer or Pentecost, and so that's where we're at tonight. And so everyone keep an eye on Miss Sherry. If she stands up, starts waving her hands and talking in tongues, that's what we're all supposed to do, okay? So, all right, Leviticus chapter 23, we're gonna start off by reading about this great feast in chapter number 23, beginning in verse number 15. Again, Leviticus 23 is the chapter of the Bible that gives all seven feasts in their chronological order. Uh, no other chapter in the Bible does that in consecutive order. You can find bits and pieces about the feasts in various places. But tonight we're going to begin in Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse number 15. So if you have your Bible, follow along, and this is what it says. And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. What day is the Sabbath? Saturday. Saturday or Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So what is the morrow or day after the Sabbath? Sunday, or the first day of the week, amen? Okay, so here we go. You shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Remember the priest raised the, the sheaf of wheat up over his head and back and forth before God. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number how many days? Fifty days. And you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of, of bread, and they're to be made of, this is the recipe now, okay, of two tenth deals. That tells you how much flour they were supposed to use in it. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. So leaven's supposed to be in this bread. Okay, there's a reason for that. 
and they are the first fruits unto the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock, and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord, with the meat offering and the drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid. One kid, that isn't one of your children, okay? You may have a child that you'd like to offer a sacrifice unto the Lord, but that's not what it's talking about, okay? You shall offer one kid of the goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them. I always have to laugh when I see that. There's subtle humor in the Bible. The Lord told him to lift up the lambs and the kid and wave those animals before the Lord, but I didn't see him tell him to lift up that bull and wave him before the Lord, okay? So he stuck with the little animals for the waving part, okay? And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for the wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs, and they shall be holy unto the Lord for the priest. You shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings and throughout your generations. And you shall reap the harvest of your land, and thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field, this ties in with what Jesus was doing one Sabbath. He was going through and they were picking uh, food to eat from the corners. And they said, why are you doing this on the Sabbath day? And so on. And it figures into the book of Ruth. Because Ruth was gleaning and picking the spots in the field of Boaz. And when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of the harvest. Thou shalt leave them for the, unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So that is the feast of Pentecost. Now turn to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 16. This is another chapter of the Bible that deals with several of the feasts, but not all of them. A couple of them get skipped in Deuteronomy chapter 16. But in Deuteronomy 16, we're going to read verses 9 through 12, where it deals with the feast of Pentecost. Now, how, how many of you got Bibles that have uh, little titles or something in, stuck in between? Okay, does your Bible say Feast of Weeks? The Feast of Weeks, okay. And now there's a reason for that. I'll explain in a minute. Seven weeks shalt thou number unto thee, begin to number the seven weeks from such a time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn, and thou shalt keep the Feast of Weeks unto the Lord thy God with a tribute of freewill offering in thine hand, and thou shalt give it unto the Lord thy God according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite that is within thy gates and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you and in the place that the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt and thou shalt observe to do these statutes. So that's everything he had to say about the Feast of Pentecost in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to actually be focusing in more in the book of Leviticus, where more specificity is given about this great feast. So if you go back, go back to the book of Leviticus, chapter number 23. And so here's the verse that we read in Leviticus, and beginning in verse number 15. It says, And you shall number unto you, you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. That is a key phrase in that verse. When do you start the count? The morrow after the Sabbath. You start counting on a Sunday, okay? And that is actually the Feast of First Fruits. So from the Feast of First Fruits, start counting. So from the resurrection of Jesus, okay, 50 days later will be the Feast of Pentecost, okay? And so that's, we just know that from the New Testament. Now, the Feast of First Fruits is what is actually being spoken of there. And then he says, you will count 50 days from there. So there are seven weeks plus one. Seven times seven, 49, plus one more day, which will bring you to a Saturday. You add one more day and you're on a Sunday again for the Feast of Pentecost. 
Now this is one of the three posters that we gave you in lesson number two, and we've already dealt with the spring feast. We finished those up last week with the Feast of First Fruits. This week we're going to deal with what's called the summer feast. And again, remember, it's not officially summer, okay, because we know when summer begins, so did they. They knew when it began. But the reason they refer to it as the start of summer or kayits, as they call it, the reason they said that is because that's when they count the planting of the new fields. And a lot of new crops get planted, and then they grow for the next four months before they're harvested. Uh, olives, pomegranates, barley, uh, another wheat crop, even oat crops. A lot of crops are planted, and then they're harvested in September. And so they have four months to get a new crop in and get them growing. And so, technically, uh, we know that the end of May, which in the Feast of Pentecost is, since it's based on the lunar calendar that began with the Feast of Passover, since it's based on that, tied directly to it, then we know that it can move around. And so the Feast of Pentecost can appear everywhere from Mother's Day, uh, which is where, about where it fell this year, all the way up to the end of May. I've seen it occur as late as what we would call Memorial Day. And I have never seen it go into June, but I've heard from someone that it has gone into June before. So it's based on their lunar month. So let's just show this. And again, keep in mind, this, these, 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 this calendar is just speculative. I'm just showing it to you to give you illustration, okay? It's not, there's nothing set in stone here. So just uh, take the Feast of Passover, okay? And then came the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the Sabbath, uh, or the day after the Sabbath came the Feast of First Fruits. And so then they were told to count seven weeks. Now count seven weeks. Okay, there's one and two and three, four, five, six, and seven. So that puts you right at about Mother's Day this year. And on the day following the Sabbath, another Sunday, is the Feast of Pentecost. And so that's how it would have fallen this year with this particular numbering or shaping of the calendar, using even 31 days, which they didn't. And so the thing is, what we need to understand is now you've got four-month break. There's no feasts. Everything has taken place eight days for the first three feasts, 50 days, then comes Pentecost. Now nothing happens for four months. And then comes the Feast of Trumpets, which lasts for 10 days. The Feast of Trumpets is 10 days long. And on the 10th day, on the last day, is the Feast of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It falls on the 10th day. And then, five days later, starts the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles, then, lasts for seven days, plus one. And we'll talk about that plus one when we get to it. This Jewish feast actually has four names. It is commonly called by four names, okay? They are pictured here, okay? Number one is the Jewish name. The Jewish name for this feast is Shavuot. Shavuot spelled out for you there in Hebrew. Remember, they read right to, uh, right to left, okay? So that is the feast, the Jewish feast of Shavuot in the Hebrew language. And Shavuot, it is also called the Feast of Weeks. My Bible, for instance, has got a little header at the top that says it's called the Feast of Weeks. When you see that, the reason it's called the Feast of Weeks, it's based on those seven weeks they counted. Remember the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven? That's what they're calling it. It's the Feast of Weeks. The third name for it is the Wave Loaves, the Feast of Wave Loaves, because the priest raises up two loaves of bread and they are waved before the Lord. We'll show that more in just a little bit. The last name, more common name, New Testament name that we know it by, is Pentecost. And so it's spelled out for you there in the Greek. And there it is in the English translation. Now, the reason it's called Shavuot, the Hebrew word Shavuot means to balance. To bring balance or to make equal. Now, if you understand what this feast is about from the very beginning, it is about the new covenant coming and the old covenant being done. If you understand that now, you understand why God called it Shavuot, because it's bringing balance between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
And when a Jew gets saved, they can call themselves completed Jews or fulfilled Jews, and I've heard a thousand different names for them. You want to know what they really are? They're part of the church of God. That's, that's what they are. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, when you get saved, you've been balanced. Now you're part of that third group that separates you from everything else. Now you're neither Jew nor Gentile, Paul says, but you're part of the church of God. And I love that part. And the Feast of Weeks, when it is referred to as the Feast of Weeks, it is simply alluding to the seven weeks that have to be counted between the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost. When it's called the Wave Loaves, it's a direct reference to the two loaves of bread that the priest will raise and wave that people are bringing. In fact, I think his arms probably get tired because he's got a lot of loaves of bread and a lot of little animals to wave all day long. Okay, so it's going to be a real workout for the priest. When it's called the Feast of Pentecost, Penta is the Greek for five, the number five. Okay, so when the Greeks translated in the Septuagint, they used the word Pentecost. And that is a reference to the number of days they were told to count from first fruits until the coming of the Feast of Pentecost, or 50. There's four names. Which one's right? They're all right. There's none that are wrong. No matter how you refer to this feast, this is correct. I know there's a lot of people out there that think the Feast of Pentecost didn't start till Acts chapter 2. Actually, it had been being observed for about 1,400 years before the book of Acts chapter 2. It is an annual feast that was watched by the Jews. Now let's learn more about the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost, okay? Number one, it was permanently linked to the Feast of First Fruits. It was one of those feasts that the Jews did not practice while they were at Sinai. They did not practice this feast while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years because it was tied to the Feast of Firstfruits, okay? So turn to Leviticus chapter 23 and look at verse 10. Let's back up to the actual Feast of Firstfruits again and notice what it says in verse number 10. And then we're going to read verse 11, 10 and 11, and then we're going to read, jump to verse 15. Notice what it says. This is the Feast of Firstfruits now. Notice what it says. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when, when, if you don't have this phrase underlined in your Bible, underline it, when ye become into the land which I give unto you. So this wasn't even to be observed until they conquered the Holy Land. Well, now that wasn't supposed to take 42 years, was it? It was supposed to be done maybe in a year, and they'd go in, take the land, Joshua and Caleb were ready to go, let's get this done, and they would have started, but instead... They chose not to obey God and wandered in the desert for 40 years. And so consequently, this feast did not start for almost 42 years after God wanted it to. So he said, when you become into the land which I give unto you, you shall reap this, the harvest thereof, and you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, Sunday in other words, the priest shall wave it. But guess what else is tied to this directly? If you can't observe the Feast of first fruits, guess what other feast you can't observe? You cannot observe the Feast of Passover because you weren't allowed to observe it until you could count 50 days from first fruits. And so now go down to verse 15. And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. So these two are directly linked. Neither of them could be observed until Joshua took over. Joshua conquered the promised land. And by the way, his military genius in that conquest was unbelievable. It's still studied at West Point today. Uh, he was a military genius in conquering the Holy Land. We don't have time to go into all that, but the two are linked. Once the conquest was done, then they could not only observe the Feast of first fruits, but 50 days later they could observe this one. So they would jump literally in their feasts from the Feast of Unleavened Bread right to the Feast of Trumpets during the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. Okay, the next thing we want to look at is you need to understand that Jesus does everything with divine purpose. Jesus never was flippant or wasted anything. I mean, even in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about when they brought the, 
the woman taken in the very act of adultery to the Lord and threw her down in front of Jesus and he knelt down and it says, and he wrote upon the ground. It said he wrote, and the word is wrote. He didn't just scribble, he didn't finger paint. He wrote something. Now, there's a lot of speculation out there and no one knows what he actually wrote, but what I'm saying is Jesus doesn't do anything without purpose. And so whatever he wrote there, it was such that it brought such conviction to the high priest or the, priest, the chief priest that brought him that when he stood up, he, I'm sure Jesus pointed at it or at least looked at it let him of you that hath no sin cast the first stone. So whatever he wrote brought such conviction to the chief priest that from the eldest to the youngest they just turned on their heels and walked away. Christ didn't do anything without purpose. He, by the way, his whole ministry was like that. First of all, you need to understand he began and ended his ministry with the same period of time. He started his ministry with a 40-day fast. Guess what he did? He ended his ministry with 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended to heaven. Nothing Jesus did was without pattern and purpose. Everything that he did. The same is also true regarding this feast, the Feast of Pentecost, okay? So he began and ended his earthly ministry with 40 days. 40 days of fasting, 40 days of appearing. Now, likewise, the new covenant summer, which we're dealing with tonight, was preceded by a 10-day gap and finishes with a 10-day gap at the end. Those are like parentheses around the new covenant. And that's exactly how the Lord operates, okay? Let me show you what I'm talking about. The Lord Jesus ascended to heaven. Dr. R.G. Lee one time preached a sermon entitled, The Ten Most Dangerous Days to the Church. And in it, he dealt with the 10 days that Christ was gone and the Holy Spirit had not come. No comforter. Now, of course, he had a purpose. He had a great message, okay? But uh, that, that 10 days. So the 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven, all the way up till the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. There's your first 10 days. Guess what? It ends with 10 days too. The new covenant ends with what is called the Feast of Trumpets, which is 10 days long. One is more literal, whereas the other is symbolic, but it's a parenthesis around a period that is called the new covenant. And you only have a time to apply the, bread, the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your heart during that period of time. Otherwise, it's all about you. It's your righteousness, just like in the Old Testament. You had to keep the Ten Commandments. You had to keep the law. You had to do your works and live righteously. You had to say no to the bad stuff and yes to the good stuff. But Paul said, they being ignorant, speaking of the Jews, ignorant of the righteousness that is in Christ, go about to establish their own righteousness. You see, now we're in that wonderful period, that glorious period. How could you want to be in any other period than this one? You are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. You say yes to Christ. You accept him as Savior. He's not even, God's not even looking at you anymore as far as that goes. You are hidden in the blood of Jesus. You couldn't ask for a better opportunity. I'm sure glad I was saved now. Because once that tribulation starts, once his church is removed, it goes back to the Old Testament economy. And it's all about you. You have to say no to the bad stuff. You have to say yes to the good stuff. You have to live righteously. You have to tell the Antichrist no, even if it means losing your driver's license, your house, your job, your family, your life. It goes back to the Old Testament economy as the 70th week of Daniel. And so we're in that wonderful, magical period. Wow, I just, I just love this period. Let me show it to you this way. I'm just going to show you it this way as an illustration. Okay, Christ was crucified, okay? And then he walked for 40 days among men, okay? And then he went to heaven. That's called his ascension. You've read the book of Acts, chapter 1. You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which was taken from you shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Ten days later, Jesus had told him to tarry in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came. That's when the Holy Spirit came, is after the ten days, all right? Now, Let's skip ahead in time a couple thousand years till today. The Holy Spirit that came, guess what? He's going to be removed. And that's called the rapture. 
That's called the translation of his church. Okay? And when he's gone, guess what? There's going to be ten more days. And those ten days are referred to as the Feast of Trumpets. Do you know in the book of Revelation, Pastor Todd, in Revelation when he said, you shall have tribulation ten days. Do you remember that in one of those Ephesians, or one of those letters in the early churches? You shall have tribulation ten days. Listen, he's just not talking to that church. That is a prophetic point, and we'll get to that later in lesson number six. But you shall have tribulation ten days. We're going to talk about that too as we look at this. So the Holy Spirit's removed. Ten days comes. Christ comes. Yom Kippur, which stands for Armageddon, comes at the end of the ten-day period and that's when the Lord Jesus returns to the earth. So that period that the Holy Spirit came, from the time the Holy Spirit came until the Holy Spirit was removed, that is known as the period of the new covenant. And you could not ask for a better time to be saved. It is so easy. It is so easy. In fact, I think when we get to heaven, they're going to look at us and say, yeah, you're one of the new covenant Christians. You had it so easy. All you had to do is pray and be saved. Do you know what I had to go through to get here? Yeah, well, hey, I love my Savior, amen? What followed the feast would normally be a four-month, the Feast of Pentecost now would be a, normally a four-month autumn harvest uh, or a four-month harvest till autumn. But Jesus cautions us all. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter number 4. And by the way, Christ picks his words carefully, Okay. And so in John chapter number 4, listen very carefully to what he says to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter number 4. Specifically, we want to pay attention to what he said in verse 35. The disciples went into the town to get some food. And when he did, you know, the woman came to the well at noon. Women always got their water at 6 a.m., why is she coming at noon? Because she's ostracized by the other ladies. They don't like her. Because she's a hussy or whatever. I don't know what you want to call it, but they don't like her. Because she's had five husbands. The guy she's shacked up with now is not her husband. She's a loosey-goosey and they don't like her. And so she has to go at a time that she doesn't get spit on, called names, whatever. And lo and behold, guess who's there waiting? Jesus. He says, give me the drink. Uh, how is it that you, being a Jew, asks me, a Samaritan woman, how to give it a... Oh, he violated a whole bunch of stuff talking to her. First of all, he's a Jew. Jews don't talk to Samaritan. And he's a man. Men don't talk to women, especially when they're alone. Jesus did. You see, I love that about the Lord. There's nobody he's willing to witness to. Amen? And so he says, and then he says, you know, you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I will give you, you will never thirst. I like that word never. I don't know about you, but it's underlined in my Bible. You will never thirst. I love that part. And so we're warned. Now look at verse 35. The disciples come back and say, Eat, Master, eat. He says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Now look at verse 35. As the townspeople. Meanwhile, the woman gets, gets uh, uh, eyes opened about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. She runs back into town. She tells the men, the men, um, see, Come see a man that told me everything I ever did. What? And so they come out of town to see. So here's this crowd of people coming out of town to see Jesus. And the disciples are telling him, you know, eat, Lord. And the Lord says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And then Jesus says, verse 35, to his disciples, Say not ye, there are yet how many months? Four months, then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. And he's pointing at this crowd of people that are coming out of the town. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. And I shared with you a few weeks ago about how wheat, as it begins to turn, when it turns from golden to white, you're about to lose the crop because it has turned over and you're seeing the white bottom of the wheat. So if it's white, that's not a good sign. It means there's not much time left to harvest before you're going to lose the whole field. And so, say not ye, there are yet how many months? Four months. Then cometh the harvest. Okay, now let's talk about the process of Shavuot. The process. Some certain things, this is, there's a process that's followed. Okay, first of all, we, as we just read, it's in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15 and 25. The priest then waves uh, two uh, loaves of leavened bread. Two loaves of leavened bread. Okay, and I brought tonight a couple of loaves of leavened bread. 
bought, and bought fresh from Hy-Vee Bakery. Okay? And so I'm going to pull that. This is going to torture me to pull this out. I may have to have a snack while y'all are sitting out there. Okay? Just saying. Two loaves of leavened bread. Right there. Mm. Ah. Okay. But here's these two loaves. Now, they, they would cook them and they would bring them and leavening, and they had leavening in them. And the priests, they would be handed these two loaves and the priests would wave them, or like this, separate at first, in the air, like this, back and forth before the Lord. But there's a point where he no longer keeps them separate. He joins them and continues to wave them before the Lord. Okay? And what I'm saying to you is the Lord has a reason for doing this. Nothing he does is without purpose. And so let's take a look at the reasons why. Number one, leaven represented all men. All men are sinners. And so it doesn't have to be unleavened bread. Now it can be leavened bread because it's representing mankind as a whole. Jew, Gentile, everybody. So that's why the leavening didn't matter because he's, he, God so loved the everybody. And it was lifted or waved before the Lord to reveal the elevated status of the church of the living God because now it's going to be a new thing before the Lord. Here's this leavened bread, two of them, Jews, Gentiles. They're going to be raised up off the earth and then they are united to show a joining of the Jews and Gentiles into that wonderful third thing that Paul called the church of the living God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians. He mentions this third group, this third essence. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse 32. I need a reader. Who can read nice and loud? Give me, give me a reader. All right, Ty, you got it. Go ahead. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. There you go. There's the third group, amen? Don't give offense to the Jews, to the Gentiles. He's saying don't be offensive to anyone, but he said don't be offensive to the Jews and Gentiles, people you meet every day, but he said don't be offensive to the people of God either, the church of the living God. In fact, in Hebrews chapter number 12, when you go to Mount Zion and to the New Jerusalem, he says you gather and see the general assembly, that's everybody that's ever been redeemed, and there's a special group within that general assembly, which he calls the church of the firstborn. It's a group of its own. There are ones that are saved under the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how you were born. So after he waves the loaves, then it's time to sacrifice animals. Ten animals are sacrificed. Seven lambs, one bull, two rams. And then he also has, after that sacrifice, there's a little ceremony, and he offers another sacrifice. This time it's three different animals. Three more animals are sacrificed. There is one kid... Okay, a kid of the goats and two lambs, small little animals. So these are the animals that get offered on the day of Pentecost. Nine lambs, one bull, two rams, and one kid of the goats. And so these little animals are held up by the priest, probably by their legs. He would grab the front and back legs, and he would lift them up and wave them like so before the Lord as an offering before they were offered. Now, I want you to know why 13 animals? Why 13? Is there, is there some spiritual significance about the 13? Well, there may be. And I'm telling you, I've looked and I've read a hundred books about it. And there's a lot of theological ado of guesswork of what them 13 animals stand for. Okay? And so here's some of the silly things that have been speculated of what they stand for. Uh, Pentecostal revivals since the church was born. There's been 13 Pentecostal revivals since the church was born. Really? And how do you know this? Okay? I look for historical documentation. It's not out there. Or it's 13 different classes of people. Wow. How are you doing this? Financially? Are you looking at their bottom line? Are you auditing their materials? How do you pick 13 different classes? Or 13 different types of churches? 
Listen, the only one that made any sense at all, even then, I'm not ready, is that it stands for Jesus and the apostles. He's the chief cornerstone, and they're the stones of the foundation. So there's 13. Well, which one's the bull then? Well, that's got to be Peter. He's got the biggest mouth. That's got to be Peter. Nobody knows. So I'm saying, why speculate? God said sacrifice 13 animals. Guess how we should read it? God said sacrifice 13 animals. And let that go. And then the last thing the priest does is he declares after these offerings the day of a holy convocation. And that just means a Sabbath. So now you're not allowed to do any servile work within the period that immediately follows. So now let's find out why in the new covenant certain things were based on the Feast of Pentecost. Everything, the Feast of Pentecost is the lightning bolt where it all started. Okay, let's do this. First of all, in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 53, Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, walked for 40 days among them. And before he ascended to heaven, he told them this. He said, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So I, well, I get this great commission I want you to do, but I don't want you to do anything yet. Just go back to Jerusalem and wait. And 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came. The last command of Christ that was placed upon his fledgling church had a powerful purpose. And he explains in the book of Acts, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and shall be witnesses unto me. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth. That's his plan. And that's how the book of Acts is even laid out. The book of Acts is laid out by that very outline, okay? Now, this coming of the Holy Ghost was a key part of God's eternal plan for our redemption, okay? It is the Holy Spirit taking possession of your life and coming into your heart that gives you the new birth. Jesus did everything necessary, but the facilitator of that new life is the Holy Spirit, He's the one that comes into your heart, removes your sin, gives you everlasting life, and he does it in a split second the day you get saved. It's automatic. And so it marks the commencement of the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of. Why could the Holy Spirit not come before the day of Pentecost? Okay, Didn't Jesus breathe on the disciples and say, receive ye the Holy Ghost? But what you don't know is he didn't give them the Holy Ghost at that time. The word he used is future tense. When the Holy Spirit comes, receive him. He gave them nothing at that moment. The Holy Spirit hadn't come. Why hadn't he come? Let's go to John. John chapter 7 tells you why the Holy Spirit had not yet come. John chapter number 7. And we're going to read verses 38 and 39. Jesus is speaking. On the last day of the feast, he stood up to speak. And he said this, Come unto me, ye that are hungry. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. But here's what he says, verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what does that mean? The disciple John admits he didn't know until later. And then he understood, so he puts in parentheses, This spake he, Jesus, of the Spirit which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Once Christ ascended to heaven, once he was glorified and sat down in his Father's throne, now the Holy Spirit could come. And that commenced the old covenant that was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. Let's turn to the book of Jeremiah now. Let's read about that new covenant, how it's what it's supposed to be like when it comes. Find the prophet Jeremiah. Go to chapter number 31. 31, 31. And here's the prophecy that Paul quotes, by the way. Paul quotes it at least a couple times in his epistles. Beginning in verse 31 down to 34, we read this. Behold, the days come saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. We all know about that covenant. Which covenant they break 
although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant. Now he's going to tell you about the new covenant. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in the inward parts, not just on tables of stone, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. And here's the two things he's going to do with the new covenant. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Not only am I going to forgive your sins, I'm going to save you forever. I'm going to forget your sins. I will remember your iniquities no more. Wow, what a covenant. So here's six or seven things that took place on the day of Pentecost. Number one is the fulfillment of Isaiah's tongues prophecy. Isaiah said the Jews are going to know this is happening when this tongues thing happens, okay? And the, what they spoke, by the way, were languages. I was asked by Pentecostal once, do you believe in tongues? I said, you hear me, don't you? Dr. J. Vernon McGee even said one time he didn't even believe it was a gift of the tongue. He said it was a gift of the ear because they heard every man in his own tongue wherein he was born. So whatever they were speaking, however it took place, the Holy Spirit translated it before it got to their ear. And they heard the glorious work of God. Whichever is the case, it was the fulfillment of a prophecy. Look at Isaiah chapter number 28. And this is mentioned by Peter. In his message, but in Isaiah chapter number 28, we read this, just verses 11 and 12. For with a stammering lips, and that's the word that should be underlined, with stammering lips and with another tongue will I speak unto the people to whom he said, this is the rest, this is the rest, the covenant, wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and what did Jesus say? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you. This is the rest, and this is the refreshing that you would not hear, that they would not hear. They didn't want to hear it. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so it is the, it is the, is that's precious. So, and the word that's used for stammering is the Hebrew word right there. It's lawag. And the wag means foreign. I'm gonna, you're going to know the new covenant comes when you hear a foreign or strange tongue speaking to you. Okay, now go to the book of Acts. Chapter number 2. Beginning in verse number 4, it says... And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. And the Hebrew or the Greek word is glossa, which means languages. They began to speak with other languages. And uh, um, these, there were dwelling at Jerusalem, as the Spirit gave them utterance, and they were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout men out of every nation. Oh, it was a cosmopolitan gathering under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every heard them, every man speaking his own language, glossa. And they were all amazed and marveled and said one to another, behold, are not all these Galileans, all, all these which, uh, are, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Now notice he's about to name some of these people in languages. There's Parthians, that's Iranians. Those are people that spoke Farsi. Okay? There's Parthians and there's Medes and Elamites, the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus of Asia, and Pontus and Asia, and Phrygia and Pamphylia, and Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretes, Arabians. We do hear them speak in our language the wonderful works of God. Wow. <laughs> and well, what Isaiah say? You're going to know the new covenant has come when they speak to you in tongues that just shock you. And that's exactly what took place. And so Acts chapter 5, verses, or 2, verse 5 through 12 tells you about it. Then it's the beginning of the new covenant. We just read the uh, book of Jeremiah, but there's three things in the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah you need to understand. Number one, verse 32 says, it's going to replace the covenant that I made with you in Egypt. Number second thing Jeremiah wants to bring your attention in verse 33, it's going to be a religion of internal faith, not external practice. 
It's going to be something you receive in here, not something you do out here. Whereas the Judaism is all about doing things. But not so with this new covenant. And the third one from verse 34 is going to provide not only forgiveness of our sin, but no more remembrance of our sin. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The third thing is the uh, God giving the breath of life to his church. On the day of creation, when he made man, okay, and so on the sixth day, he got down there and played in the dirt, you know, and he, he made Adam, and there he was, there was Adam laying right there, and he had, he had eyeballs, and he had eyelids, and eyelashes, and he had hair, I think maybe he had hair, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But he, he had hair, and there was, he had everything except a belly button. I mean, think about it, he didn't have a belly button. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him to lift his skirts, I want to see. Okay? And he's probably, never mind, we won't go there. But anyway, he has toes and toenails, there's the body. He made the body. Guess what Jesus did? He walked by the Sea of Galilee one day, and he said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Guess what he started to do? He started to make the body. And he formed the body. He called his apostles. And then there was thousands. And then from the thousands, he chose 70. And from the 70, he chose 12. And from the 12, he had James, Peter, and John, the three. And then of the three, he had John, the apostle, who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He had trusted his mother to. He made the body. And the two things are exactly alike. Because all that was missing from the body was it didn't have any breath. And the Bible says, after God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, he breathed in him the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul. And on the day of Pentecost, guess what Jesus did? To the body that he created while he was here in his ministry. He breathed in it with a breath of life and it became a living thing. And that's that rushing mighty wind. Now you and I wouldn't even think about hearing a jet airplane go over us today. It's like, yeah, whatever. Heard them a million times. Turn the clock back a couple thousand years and imagine the sound of a jet engine or louder. You think that would draw a crowd? Yeah, that's why Peter didn't have to go out and knock door to door. The crowd came to where the noise was. What was that? It was over by the temple. Let's go see what that was. He had a ready-made crowd that morning, amen? And he got up there and he began preaching to them. 3,000 of them followed the Lord in baptism. The fourth thing, it was the launch of Christ's, Christ's Great Commission. Remember what he said? And they didn't do it. And pastor's been talking about Apostle Paul. He didn't do it. They, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. No, it was Jerusalem and Jerusalem and Jerusalem and Jerusalem. And finally God said, okay, I'm going to have to raise up a persecutor. You're not, getting the, you're not doing what I asked. And so this persecutor began to decimate the church of God. Well, guess what happened when this persecutor rose? Christians scattered everywhere. Now they're starting to do what I told them to do in the first place. Now they went up to Antioch and they started another congregation in Antioch. They went up to Cappadocia and they started a congregation there. They ran here, they started one there. They ran there, they started one there. Well, amen. Jesus said, that's what I told you to do in the first place. And so that was the launch of Christ's Gate Commission. Now, it's in every gospel. It's in Matthew 28, verse 19, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Luke 24, 47, John 20, 21, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's probably the most famous of all. Get out there and reach the world. Amen. Reach the world. I look around at those flags and it just, the first day Karen and I walked in here five years ago, I looked at those flags and I said, I almost came to tears because this is what we did at Lanakiel. And I just said, wow, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because they're not just pieces of colored cloth. They stand for something. They stand for the heart of this church and this ministry and that pastor. Because they want the world to hear the gospel. And there's not much time left to do it. So the more we can do, the better. It was the launch of the Great Commission on the day that the Holy Spirit came. It was time for them to get busy, not just in Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part. Then, not only that, it was the start of the Holy Spirit's intercession for us. Okay? Jesus told John, um, when Nicodemus snuck and saw him at nighttime, Jesus said to him, you must be born again. That means born from above. In other words, you've got to have the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. Guess what Paul said in Romans chapter 8? If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even saved. 
It is the Holy Spirit that empowers you with the work that Jesus did. And you know what kind of gets me, and this isn't evil, but I get nervous when I see a church put up a dove. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. I get nervous. You know why I do? Because Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. He will not speak of himself. But what he heareth of me, he will speak of me. The exaltation is supposed to be Christ, not the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's important. He's a member of the Trinity. He gives us everlasting life. Romans 8 says he's an intercessor for us. I love the Holy Spirit. I, I, I think he's worthy of worship. But he didn't die on the cross. His job is to bring to you what Jesus did and put it in your heart and give you back that life that they once enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. You must be born again. If you're not born again, you cannot be saved. And then it's the, not only that, it is number six, the eternal seal that's provided to new covenant believers others did not have. Let's look at Ephesians chapter one. Turn to the little book of Ephesians chapter one. I mean, when Paul opens this book, my goodness, he hits you right from the beginning with powerful, powerful messages. I kind of like that about Paul's epistles. He hits the ground running when he does. When he writes an epistle, man, right from, day, from word number one. Now notice what he said to us in verse number 13. In whom, speaking of Jesus, you believed in Christ, the last word of verse 12. In whom ye also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth. So there's your salvation. The gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Amen. Sealed. Sealed tight. We cannot. Jesus said, you, you know, you're in the Father's hand and you're sealed. You, no, one, no one's going to lose their salvation that I give to them. You will never thirst. And then number seven, it's also the empowerment of Christians to be a good witness. That's what we're supposed to be as Christians. Ye shall receive power to speak in tongues and to heal and to touch people in their foreheads and slay them in the spirit. I don't remember reading that verse. You ever read that verse anywhere in the Bible? No? You want to know what the real power of the Holy Spirit is? It's witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for the testimony of someone who says they're a Christian, says they can speak in tongues, says they have all these gifts, and they won't even open their mouth for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they won't be a witness. Don't tell me about your gifts. I don't even want to hear about them. The greatest gift you can possibly have. Let's look at a few things. I want you to see. Here's the greatest gift. You want to know what the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is? Here it is. Jump to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Just stay in the book of Acts for just a little bit. Let's, let's, I think you'll get a pattern here of what I'm talking about. Acts chapter number 4. Look at verse number 13 in chapter number 4. Now when they saw the what? Underline that word. When they saw the boldness, boldness of Peter and John, and perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Look at verse 29, same chapter, verse 29. And now, O Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak of thy word. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Go to chapter 9 now. Chapter 9. Time has not changed things. Saul of Tarsus has become Paul the Apostle. He's saved now. But look at chapter 9, verses 27 and 29. It says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto him how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken unto him and how he preached what? Boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Look at verse number 29. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed among the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Now jump to chapter 13. 
Look at verse 46. Paul has done his first missionary journey. Now in chapter number 13, verse number 46. Look what we find here. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed what? Bold. Bold. And said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. Jump ahead to chapter 14, verse 3. Chapter 14, verse number 3. Long time, therefore, they abode speaking what? Boldly in the name. You want to know what the true gift of the Holy Spirit is? It's boldness. So let me tell you something. Next time you're in a situation and you're scared because you want to speak up for the Lord, but you know that relative is not very friendly or that person may not receive it well, you want to know what you need to overcome that hump? You need boldness. And that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know what I found in my life, in my Christian life of 50, going on 51 years? You know what I found? That if you'll just take that first step, just have a few seconds of courage and speak, half the time it's not nearly as bad, more than half the time it's not nearly as bad as you thought it was. And they actually start asking you questions and it doesn't develop into a hateful conversation. But can I tell you something? Even if it develops into a hateful conversation and they cuss at you and tell you to get away, guess what? God's going to show them that on their judgment day. That they had an opportunity because God's word does not return void. That's the true gift of the Holy Spirit. So, from, from the time of the Feast of Pentecost until the Feast of Trumpets, you have four months. Jesus said, Say not ye, there are yet four months. Then cometh harvest. Behold, I say, and you lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white already unto harvest. Look at the church growth from the book of just the book of Acts. In chapter 1, they were at 120. By the time of chapter 2, they're at 3,120. Chapter 4, verse 4 says they added 5,000 more. Now they're at 8,120. And then there were so many they didn't count them. They said multitudes by the end of chapter 5. And then the disciples were multiplied. In other words, it became exponential. They couldn't count them all anymore. That's how the word of God grows. In reality, the church of Jerusalem grew to more than 50,000 souls. They couldn't have gathered them. This is the first megachurch. And they couldn't gather them all into one place. The church of Christ grew because the Holy Spirit came. Because Christians had boldness. So listen, the church has been built. The power and seal of the Holy Spirit has been given to you in your life. And we are now in the kayets, the harvest time. But can I tell you something? Those four months are almost over. We don't have much time left before the trumpet blows and the feast of trumpet comes. Remember this chart that I gave to you? Listen, we've already done the first three. We're in the middle of the fourth one, the Feast of Shavuot, Pentecost, and the Kayets of Harvesting. We're there. Say not ye, there are yet four months. Oh, there's plenty of time to do this. No, Jesus said, lift up your eyes, look on the harvest. Open your eyes. You don't have much time. Turn to Isaiah chapter number 26. Isaiah chapter 26. We're about to close here our, our message on the New Covenant summer. And in chapter 26, look what, the whole, well, look what by prophecy, look at this fantastic passage of Scripture that ends with these words. It's the calling up of his children. In verse number 20 of chapter 26, the great prophet says this. God is actually speaking here. He's just writing it down. Isaiah's writing it down. Here's what the Lord says. Come, is this for the lost? Who's he calling? My people. Come, my people. Enter thou into thy chambers. I go to prepare a place for you. And shut the doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment. How long, Lord? Until the indignation be overpassed. Well, what's the indignation, Lord? Look at verse 21. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of Israel, to punish the inhabitants of the earth. This is a global event. I'm going to punish the inhabitants of earth. And the earth shall also disclose her blood and shall no more cover their slain. There's going to be so many dead, they can't even bury them anymore. That's the tribulation period. But before that great day of indignation comes, guess what happens? Come, my people, 
Come, my people. Come. Come to the place that's prepared for you. Hide thyself for a few moments while I take care of this other thing. Okay? Yeah, Christians are promised deliverance. Do you know the Lord is your Savior today? Have you been harvested? Do you know Christ as your Savior? There's not much time left in the kayets of the summer harvest, the new covenant summer. Now on July the 9th, there's going to be a couple weeks break here, but on July the 9th, we're going to deal with the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And that will take place on, on July the 9th, the Feast of the Lord. It's nice to know about them, but I want to give you this final warning before we close. Here's an important reminder. The knowing all about the feast isn't going to do you a bit of good if your life isn't under the blood. You have to be under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit stands ready to apply it to your hearts the instant you say yes to the Lord. The instant you say yes. So are you under the blood? Is your name in the book? Thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a privilege to share God's word with you. If God has spoken to your heart because of the message, stop right now and respond to whatever it is God is asking of you. Don't wait another minute. You can pray right where you're at and ask God for his help. If this message has helped you in any way, we would love to hear from you. Let us know if you have any questions or we can help you with your decision. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do ye say that I am? And he offers the same question to you today. What would your answer be?